This podcast is brought to you by Eisner Award-winning Legend Comics and Coffee in Omaha, Nebraska, and supporting listeners like you. Go to TwoHeadedNerd.com and click Donate, or visit Patreon.com backslash TwoHeadedNerd to become a supporter today. Ha-cha! Broadcasting from the ever-quarantined ziggurat at Omaha, deep below the metro area, it is a pleasure to welcome you to episode 569 of the Two-Headed Nerd comic book podcast, nerds. My name is Matt Baum, and I gotta say, this whole staying at home thing hasn't been so bad. I don't mind it. Yeah, you know, I don't, uh, I have no complaints so far. My dog is here yeah. to keep me company. Yeah, I've got, uh, I got a couple of them. Got a lot. Throw them outside when they, when they piss me off, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I am the Internet's Joe Patrick. This week, we are hosting a special spotlight review on eight different famous first appearances from across the comics time stream because there are still no new comics. After that, it's up to the THN Sanctum Sanctorum, where we're going to tell you all about what we're reading next week. And finally, we got a whole new segment, folks, coming at you. It's called This Is Your Life where we dissect some really bad continuity to tell the story of one character's bizarre history, or at least try and make sense of it. And this week, Guy Gardner is our first victim. But before we put on the bowl hat to cut our own hair, how about some editorial madness while we discuss this week's... Nerd News. Nerd News. You thought I wasn't ready, but I was. Echo, echo. We've got a follow-up here to last week's story about Jim Lee's sketch drive. A host of superstar artists have joined Lee on his quest to create 60 sketches in 60 days to benefit the book industry charitable foundation, a.k.a. Bink. This is so cool. Seriously, this is so it makes my heart swell. Yes, I agree. Uh, in case you did not hear, Bink is a nonprofit dedicated to assisting booksellers in need, including comic booksellers, and money from this fundraiser is pledged directly to assist comic shops that may be struggling during the COVID-19 pandemic. I like to put a little spin yeah, on it. I'm saying it. I'm saying, saying that now. COVID, COVID. That's how I say it. Gotcha. Yeah. Brian Hitch. And Ivan Rice have signed on to the project, while Arthur Adams and Raphael Albuquerque have already contributed their first pieces. Each auction lasts three days, and they have all, so far, raised several thousand dollars. With Art Adams's Wolverine sketch soaring to nearly eight grand in less than one day as of this writing. It's so cool, too. That sketch is so kick-ass. It's great. Lee's Batman Red Rain piece is the big winner so far, selling for over $17,000. See, and it's it's hard to know, like, are the people that are buying this, are they doing this out of the goodness of their heart to, like, help comic shops? Or are they just like, hey, Jim Lee never does this shit. Well, I'm going to get me some Jim Lee art. You Who know? cares? Like, he's dropping seventeen grand. That's a shitty car. You know, <laughs> who cares, like, that's man? Impressive. <laughs> there have only been 15 pieces released so far, and the series has generated over $130,000 before auction fees. At this pace, at this pace, the experiment will more than double the $250,000 donation pledged by DC Comics as an entire corporate entity. <laughs> 
this is exactly what I was talking about last week when I said DC needs to make that a larger number because this is ridiculous. I love that these guys are doing this. It's awesome. But these guys are not millionaires or billionaires. They're just talented artists. And they're going to raise more money for this than DC is actually putting forward. DC is a mega corporation and could easily put a, throw a million bucks at this. Easily. Well, I think Jim Lee's a millionaire. <laughs> he very well may be, but he's not a mega corporation that makes billions of dollars. That's fair. Okay, is what I'm saying. Yeah, that's fair. I think this is awesome. This is just as cool as some of the NBA stars that have come forward to like make sure that everyone that works at their arenas are paid while the billionaire assholes that own the team are not doing that. I think this is kick-ass, and it just seriously makes my heart swell. I love this. And we're going to hear even more about this at the end of the show. So cool. From the Dreadstar desk, Dreadstar returns! Jim Starlin is returning to his seminal creator-owned hero, Dreadstar, for the first time in 30 years. If you don't know Dreadstar, he's a guy in a blue shirt, funny hat, and he's got this sword kind of axe thing, and it's, it's a, electric. It's a sword and, axe, yeah. Uh, it's and a, it's cool as hell. It's a, <laughs> it's, a, it's a blue hoodie onesie. Yeah. He's probably, I think he's got pirate boots. He definitely has pirate boots. Yeah. No question. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not only is Starlin writing it, he's going to be drawing it too after once thinking he would never be able to draw again. Here's a cool part. Several years ago, and I think we reported on this, Starling injured his drawing hand and thought he'd never be able to draw again, but after some physical therapy and some dedication, he's back at it. He's writing, penciling, and coloring Dread Star Returns with inker Jamie Jameson on board to finish it out. This is scheduled to arrive in October from Ominous Press. I don't know no Ominous Press, but no, I'm guessing neither. they're like a startup. Dreadstar Returns is going to be a 100-page graphic novel by Starlin that's now raising funds on Kickstarter. Get over there and throw money at it, you jerks. In this new story, Vanth Dreadstar will, will reunite with his former crewmates to confront a new universe-threatening menace. I'm not going to go into the whole thing here, but it's going to be awesome, okay? As part of the Dreadstar Returns Kickstarter campaign, Ominous Press is also offering a new supplemental book that's like a guidebook, who's who, kind of thing by former DC editor Robert Greenberger outlining all of the characters and history from Starlin's Dread Star stories. To I am a sucker for a who's who. Oh man, I love them too. I'm personally going to throw 50 bucks at this because I love Dread Star so much. I challenge Joe Patrick to do the same thing. Starlin and Ominous <laughs> are aiming to raise 28 grand for Dread Star Returns on Kickstarter by May 10th, by the May 10th deadline. That is nothing. Okay. Reward tiers include not only the graphic novel and the guidebook, but recent omnibuses, legacy reprints of Dreadstar number one, sketch covers, t shirts. I want a Dreadstar t shirt so fucking bad. And more. <laughs> I mean, I hate to Joe break Patrick. I hate to break it to you, but I have donated twenty seven thousand dollars to this campaign. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. I just embezzled it all from the Patreon account. I was gonna say we had twenty seven grand. I just no I shit. wiped it right out. <laughs> right out. <laughs> I'm actually okay with it in this <laughs> for this one. <laughs> uh, you know, my only exposure to Dreadstar is the ads in the back of the like old Conan comics I had as a kid. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. I just like I saw the cast of characters. I saw the I saw the I saw the guy with the weird yellow face with the bumpy eyebrows, and I saw Dreadstar in his hoodie with his axe sword. I'm like, what's up? What is up with that guy? 
and I have never actually seen, I never actually saw a Dreadstar comic until I was an adult. There was something about all those Marvel epic ads that was, I don't know who was behind those, but they were so good. I remember like the Steel Grip Starkey ad Dude. where I was just like, this is about a super construction worker. I don't even care about construction workers, and I have to uh, read that. <laughs> and it wasn't just that. It was it was all ads, all ads in the 80s. I remember obsessing mm -hmm. over the original TSR D&D &D ads that were like oh, yeah. sequential comics where it's like, Here's a group of characters. Oh, yeah. It's a warrior. Okay, we're getting way off topic here. Let's bring it back to Dredd. Yeah, I'm just saying, like, <laughs> they they did a great job really making me want to read those comics. Dreadstar is something I totally missed out on. Man, I read Dreadstar because my I used to make my dad take me to Star Realm in La Vista, which was like Omaha's kind of original comic shop back in the day. Dragon's Lair was still around. Don't at me, you fucking guys. All right. But uh, actually, I don't know. <laughs> yes, Dragon's Lair predates all those sh all the shops. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it does. Yes, they do. But they didn't have Dreadstar, and Star Realm did, and I fell in love with it, man. It was just like space pirate kind of shit, and it seemed like a little more serious and a little more real than my X-Books and stuff. And like, I don't know, man. There was something about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Dreadstar at the time where I felt like I was reading real shit, you know? And, like, I like the hero, the yeah. Marvel stuff, but, like, this was something different. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm super excited for this. We will have a link to the Kickstarter in the show notes for this one, and I'll remind Joe Patrick to add that link to the show notes. Go throw some money at this. This is awesome. I, it's just so great that Jim Starlin can still do this after the accident that he had. This is a great return. From the I did not know they were still making Marvel movies desk, director Sam Raimi, who helmed the original Spider-Man movie, the original Spider-Man movie trilogy. That's right. All three of them. He has confirmed that he will be directing Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness following those initial reports from early February that he was in talks to do so. Yeah, because we talked about this before. And we I was did. like, wait a minute. And now it's I a thought this was done. Now it's a fish. He spoke to Coming Soon, confirming the project, talking about a reference he previously made to Strange in Spider-Man 2 in which the character Ted Hoffman, uh, who I assume was the Ted Raimi character. It could be. <laughs> he he rattles off some suggestions for naming Dr. Octopus, uh, including Dr. Strange. Yeah. I, okay, I do remember that. He, I think he it just was made him. a joke about it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he, he made a quote about how much he loves the character, blah, blah, blah. Uh, this is good news. It's been a very long time since Sam Raimi has directed a movie, and I said this last time we talked yeah, about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, you the, did. The great and wonderful Oz was the last thing he directed. And uh, I'm not saying he's lost a step. He has produced a bunch of young talent making really cool horror movies, and I hope, I really do hope they let him do the horror thing. I, I hope they let him go full horror here because originally we were told the multiverse of madness was going to be more horror related. And then all of a sudden the director got fired. <laughs> so I hope they lean into it. I hope they let Sam Raimi get creepy with this one because I think we're ready for an edgier, creepy Marvel movie and Dr. Strange. Perfect place for that. I totally agree. Yeah. That's the great thing about the Marvel universe is that there are all sorts of different types of stories. Yeah, definitely. Like, and it's, it's, I love the Doctor Strange, the first Doctor Strange movie. Love it. But it was still very much a superhero movie. Suddenly he was an Avenger. 
<laughs> I would like to see Doctor Strange set itself apart a little bit and do things that we can't do in other Marvel movies. Like, I, this was not the superhero movie I thought I was going to see at all. This was way more of a creepy horror flick. Something along those lines. You know what I mean? Yeah, for and sure. I'm hoping Sam Raimi is a guy to do that. Uh, Multiverse of Madness is still scheduled for a November 5th, 2021 theatrical release. We'll see if that holds. Yeah, if movie theaters are still a thing in society at that point. <laughs> uh, I know that I know that most of the Marvel Cinematic Universe schedule has shifted by at least six months, uh, including yeah. Black Widow and the Eternals, yada, yada, yada. So we'll see Wouldn't what happens. surprise me if this one does too. We'll see. We'll see. That is your nerd news for the week, but I'm sure we missed plenty of other stories while building our website for the ad Darkman to the Doc Strange 3 cast petition. He was a Marvel comic character, okay? Yeah, that's right. They made the Darkman comics. Yeah. You're <laughs> you right. do this. You're not wrong. And Sam Raimi directed it. It is my favorite Sam Raimi film. It's so good. <laughs> so hit us up on the THN forums, big news section, or any of our social media outlets and talk about these stories or anything you think we missed. I don't want Darkman on the Avengers, though. He's not an Avenger. You know, like Wolverine. Look, man, no if they make a Darkman movie, he will eventually be an Avenger in Phase <laughs> 6. <laughs> it's Spotlight Review Time in the Ziggurat, and this week, since there are no new comics, Joe and I are reviewing famous first appearances now the idea here was we were going to go back in time and look at maybe not necessarily first issues although we did re review a couple of those but first appearances of characters in comics yeah they didn't necessarily happen in a number one exactly and we came up with some pretty good ones joe patrick before we get into that though we should wet our whistles because uh Nothing goes better with old comics and booze. Let me tell you, let's go to the official THN bartender, Mr. Justin Fletcher, for the cocktail of the week. Take it away, Justin. All right, nerds, this week we are looking at first appearances of certain comic characters focusing on Bane and on Sabretooth. Um, I think everybody uh, is aware that uh, Bane popped out in 1993, Sabretooth in 1977. I really, really wanted a cocktail that came from one of those two years, but um, let's face it, a lot of classics didn't pop out in those times. Uh, they came out a long time before, so especially during these quarantine times, I wanted a cocktail that was going to be pretty easy for people to make at home. Um, so we looked at, we took it back 100 years prior to Sabretooth. Is it 1877 exactly? No. Um, it's sometime in that decade. We know this drink popped out, but there's not an exact year for it. But for these purposes, we want to just imagine that it did. It was, in fact, made in 1877. So what was made in the 1870s in New York for the first time that is easy and everyone loves? Yes, you got it. It is the Manhattan. Typical 212 is what we call that drink because it's two parts rye, one part vermouth, two dashes bitters, into a coupe, done. Um, so let's start talking about how we make this drink. So first, um, you're gonna use two ounces of rye. Um, I prefer an overproof rye in Manhattan's just to give it a little bit more bite, a little bit more flavor. So look at something that's, you know, at least 100 proof, maybe um, Rittenhouse 100 proof in Bond or uh, Old Forster has a new 100 proof rye. Um, you've also got Wild Turkey uh, 101 rye. 
um, one of those guys will make a really great man hat. Second, you're going to use one ounce of vermouth, um, maybe like cokey. Uh, sweet vermouth here, by the way, just so you don't get confused. Uh, maybe Koki or Carpino Antica or Contrado. Um, and then you're going to do two dashes of bitters. You're going to put that into a stirring vessel. You're going to drop ice on top of it. You're going to stir it for probably about a minute. Um, strain it into a coupe. Take a slice of orange peel, express it over the top, and you're good to go. Um, however, if you prefer your uh, Manhattan on rocks, I would just suggest you just build that right in the glass, uh, drop ice right on top of it, give it a few nice good stirs, do the same deal with your orange, and you've got a Manhattan on rocks as well. Um, I don't think anybody's gonna judge you whether or not you drink it up or you drink it on rocks. It's a great drink regardless. Um, it just does water down a little bit quick on ice, so drink it fast and you'll be all right. All right, that's it, nerds, enjoy. Joe Patrick, now that we've got a little something-something, a ring-a-ding-ding, if you know what I mean, let's cheers and uh, get into it, shall we? Excelsior. Brother. Excelsior. My first review for the week is Green Lantern number 59 from DC Comics 1968. I believe it might be the earliest comic we've reviewed so far. I think so. The first appearance of DC's third, uh, let's call him the third, human Green Lantern, <laughs> Guy Gardner. Uh, it's a real puzzler. <laughs> I've known Guy's story for years. He's a school teacher with a troubled past that was passed over by Abin Sur's ring by the simple twist of fate that Hal Jordan happened to be closer. What I didn't know is that his first appearance is basically a huge what if. Or, in terms of DC stories, an imaginary story. It shows what would have happened if Guy had been chosen instead of Hal Jordan. Spoiler alert, it does not end well for Guy. <laughs> this is a classic Silver Age tale from writer John Broom, full of those classic tropes like constant explanations of the simplest events and uh, and the obligatory origin recap this is a classic silver age tale from writer john broom it's got those classic tropes like the constant explanation of the very simplest of events it's got the obligatory origin recap in case this issue had been some kids first it's a ton of goofy fun it's brought to life by the legendary art of gil kane uh who co-created hal jordan it's all very silly but it makes a strong case for why creators would want to bring back Guy Gardner for real years later. His real origin is a lot more convoluted than this issue lets on, which we will find out in just a little bit. I'm giving Green Lantern 59 a buy it. It's probably worth many hundreds of dollars, so find it on the app or Comixology. <laughs> yeah, uh, Gil Kane is, is a legend. And this, looking back at this, there is a lot of stuff here that it looks dated and it looks a little silly, but it's also at the same time. It's the Silver Age. Right. But it also formed the way that we look at a lot of modern comics. And you can see him really pushing some barriers here, especially with the way like the ring powers are used and stuff like that. Like, Gil Kane is a fucking master, man. And this was cool to go back and read this. I liked how they set it up, although in this first in this first storyline, he was actually a good Green Lantern. Yeah, he was pretty good, but like it just didn't work out. You know how it goes. <laughs> I'm giving it a buy it as well. It, it was a lot. of. It's fun. a fun read, man. Absolutely. Matt Bomb, what are you reviewing first this week? 
You know what, Joe Patrick? One of my favorite bat villains is Bane. And we had a THN Twitter poll this week, and I asked, who do you think is the best modern bat villain? And Bane was a choice. Harley Quinn was a choice. And then I threw in the Batman who laughs for shits and giggles. And Bane won huge time. Gigantic time. A couple people wrote in Victor Zaz because they're sickos. And now we know who they are and we can watch Well, that's them. a good choice so, too, though. That's important. <laughs> it's all right. But I don't think any modern Bat villain has as much importance as Bane. He has become Batman's nemesis. Yeah. Now, here's the thing. I own Vengeance of Bane number one and two from DC, 1993, first appearance of Bane. I had never read them, and I didn't know it until I read this issue. Well, and the funny thing is, is that Vengeance of Bane number two came out two years later. It has nothing to do with this original story. No, it doesn't. But I owned both of these, and I had never read them. I promptly read them both. Writer Chuck Dixon create and artist Graham Nolan created Bane for this two-part double-sized miniseries. And the initial idea actually came from Denny O'Neill. That's from your Bane wiki there. I didn't realize it. Like I said, I'd never read this. This was 1993 that this came out, but the comic feels very classic in the storytelling. Nolan's art... Is just so strong in like a Silver Age, Joe Kubert, war comic style. And it doesn't hurt that Eduardo Barreto is on inks. I think Eduardo I, I think Eduardo Barreto gets a huge amount of the credit because his his ink transforms Man, pencilers. He made this look amazing. Yeah. Very classic coloring too by Adrian Roy, using a lot of like solid colors to create emotion and violence. Like the very first page is two soldiers getting shot and both are colored bright red and there is no blood illustrated on the page at all, but just the coloring like suggests this very bloody death. Dixon's story reads like a gritty old EC crime comic. Bane grew up in the worst prison you could possibly think of with terrifying inmates, a crooked warden, rats, a cell that fills with water every night. Bane lives through a series of horrors as a child, sentenced to prison for his father's crimes in a fictional South American country called Santa Prisca. Dad actually turns out to be King Snake in the pages of Nightfall. What? No mm -hmm. shit? King Snake is Bane's dad? Kingsnake is Bane's dad. I did not know that. Yep. Nightfall was the classic story where Bane breaks Batman's back, of course. The story is just mean and nasty, and every terrible thing that happens to young Bane forms his merciless personality. There's some nods to the supernatural here and there, where, like, young Bane is being visited by his future self while he's in a coma. I think he's just hallucinating. I mean, probably, but it was him coming to tell him, you will be a badass, yeah, you will be like but whatever. But I don't think it was literally <laughs> happening. I think he was hallucinating. No, he was, I don't know. I mean, that's kind of an odd hallucination. No, no, no. <laughs> it's a great script, but I will say when Bane meets Bird, one of the prisoners from Gotham, who tells him about Batman, the story does take a pretty big leap and suddenly Batman becomes Bane's nemesis. He's like, he's obsessed with him, yeah. I'm from Gotham. It's pretty cool, man. But there's this guy named Batman there. Everybody's scared of him. Bane's like, Batman, huh? Yeah, he's my nemesis. <laughs> I, like, I, some I did not quite understand why Bane was so hot and bothered to go to Gotham. <laughs> like, you literally could have gone anywhere where there is not a Batman. <laughs> 
totally and and ruled or taken over Santa Prisca, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, and now you run a country. Yeah. I mean, there's some fun nods to some bad guys I either forgot about or can't remember at all, like Jimmy No Nos. <laughs> I didn't know no Jimmy No Nos. Yeah, this is an excellent origin story, by the way. Excellent art. Great intro to arguably the best modern bat villain. I'm just going to say it. Bane is the best modern bat villain. And our Twitter poll only reinforces that. I am giving this such a huge buy it. Yeah, this man. I, so fucking cool. I finished this. I finished this and I texted Matt immediately and I said, Vengeance of Bane is fucking awesome. <laughs> it was great. Uh, I, like, when was the last time they introduced a bad guy? I mean, like, look at Punchline, the way that. Yeah, no, no, whatever. No. Like, but like, they just said, here's a, here is a one shot story where you see like, childhood to modern day of how this person was whipped into a force of fucking like, nature. I mean, obviously, <laughs> you know? obviously this came out 1993 nightfall was right around the corner. They mm -hmm. put, they put this out with the express purpose of setting up Bane as the next bat villain. Yeah, definitely. And I read this, I had not read it before. Uh, I guess I, I did not realize vengeance of Bane was his first appearance. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I read it, and I was so impressed. It holds up, man. It really holds it, up. It really does. It really it, does. It made me, I don't want to get too far into the weeds here, but it really depressed me about creators like Chuck Dixon and I think also nah. Graham Nolan. Uh, nah, I mean, Yes, look, it did. It, it did. Are they assholes? Sure. Is this a good story? Yes, yes. it is. And, and I'm not going to hold their politics against it because this just reinforces the thing that we have always said is that Chuck Dixon is the Batman creator of the 1990s. Yeah, and definitely. Uh, like this was a phenomenal read. And Bane has always, to me, been kind of an, a jokey villain. Uh, you know, part of the excess of the 90s. But I read this and I'm like, shit. Bane is legit. Yeah, he's terrifying. He he is my favorite bad villain, and I love this book. I loved it too. The art is outstanding. Graham Nolan. Yeah. I've loved. I've always loved Graham Nolan, but Eduardo Barreto, the late great Eduardo Barreto, really puts it over oh, the top. Man, yeah, he did a bunch of like on Chuck Dixon and Graham Nolan's Batman run as well. Before any of the Nightfall stuff, Eduardo Barreto inked a bunch of that, and it is gorgeous it's a phenomenal it's book gorgeous it, stuff. this is a huge buy it for me i really loved it joe patrick back at you where are we going next all right leaping forward just a few years it's nova number one from marvel 1976 <laughs> Whew. now i would love to pick jason Sachs's brain about the creation of nova one of these days because to the unknowing <laughs> reader it seems like Marvel Comics was so desperate to create another superstar character that they cribbed almost everything about him from other classics. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, no question. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I have loved Nova forever. But you would have to be blind not to see how much the concept swipes from both Green Lantern and oh, Marvel's yeah. own Spider-Man from... The teens with alliterative names, with their kitschy hangout, to the dying cosmic champion passing on his strange abilities before the end. 
Even still, this is a perfect first issue done in a classic style. We learn about put-upon teen Rich Rider and his wackily named pals, a succinct look at his relationships, a compelling origin story, a breakdown of his new abilities, and an exciting superhero throwdown. Now, the villain is dispatched a little too conveniently at the end, but this issue was still a blast to read, courtesy of the legendary Marv Wolfman and John Bishema. I loved Nova Number 1. It's a shame that it took 30-plus years for the character to catch on in a real way. I'm giving it a buy it. Big time. It's Marv Wolfman doing Stan Lee. <laughs> I mean... I mean, I'm talking about art style as well. He drew it. Well, also. no, John B. No, John B. Shema was the artist, and John B. Shema was doing John B. Shema. Oh no, you're right. It was John. B. Yeah, it was John. B. Sorry, John B. Shema. I said that in my review. He okay. It still looked very Jack Kirby. No, to me. it's John B. Shema. <laughs> is John B. Shema? He's got his own distinct style. Fair enough. Um, I hated this. <laughs> what? Really? <laughs> yeah, I hated it. I'll be real honest. It was such a ripoff. It was such a blatant ripoff. Like that I couldn't I couldn't take myself out of that and be like, yeah, but it's Nova, man. Like this looking back at this, it was so completely ripped off that it seems like they barely thought about it, honestly. <laughs> and, I mean, like, I like the art. Bushima's great, and there's a lot of fun, like, cosmic stuff here. I love the, uh, who's the bad guy in the end? I can't remember. Zor the Conqueror, that's it. And he's got a big, weird, like, 60s sci-fi gun and stuff, and Nova comes and kicks the crap out of him. I mean, it was kind of a fun story, but it's just such a blatant ripoff that I could Well, sure, not. but I mean, come on. <laughs> you can't still find the charm in it? I can only give this a skim it. There was plenty of charm. That's all there was. The rest of this was just ripped off. <laughs> okay. Get out of town. Let's jump forward to the 70s, Joe Patrick. I'm reviewing Iron Fist 14 from Marvel. This was 1977 and the first appearance of Sabre Tooth. Ah. Most a lot of people think he popped up in the X Men first. Not true. No, Sabretooth. He was an Iron Fist villain first. Chris Claremont and John Byrne are your creative team on Iron Fist at this time. They would obviously go on to work on Uncanny X Men. There, this was just fun. This is Chris Claremont going insane with his writing, with. Quotes like, the biting skirl of a high mountain wind almost killed us both. <laughs> I read a recolored edition that looks like it had been, like, maxed out in every filter. But with that said, there are some coloring things they just don't do anymore. There's a panel with Danny meeting Colleen Wing at the airport, and there's a crowd of blue people, but Danny and Colleen are bright orange, so they stand out because they were afraid, like, maybe the word bubbles wouldn't clue us into who they were. <laughs> Burn sure. is just amazing on the art here. I forget that he worked on stuff other than FF and X-Men. I totally forgot that he was on this Iron Fist run, honestly, and I forgot how good the guy was at the time claremont is in full liberal democrat mode with colleen giving danny lessons in feminism <laughs> Sabretooth is a little cleaner cut than nowadays but pretty much the same he's got the silly brown suit with the furry collar when he first tangles with danny Sabretooth just gets laid out with one shot and it's not even danny's iron fist <laughs> 
You can tell Claremont had big plans for Sabretooth, though, just the way that he writes Danny talking about him when they finally square off during a rescue attempt of Jerwin Hogarth. Jaron. Love that name, by the way. It's Jaron, <laughs> not Jerwin. Danny thinks to himself, he's like a human saber-toothed tiger, the ultimate killing machine. <laughs> Danny, of course, beats Sabretooth, but it's a brawl for certain. And in the next and final issue of this Iron Fist run, the X-Men show up, but no Wolvie Sabretooth fun just yet. However, Wolvie is wearing the worst version of his suit. Oh, is the he wearing the, the fang costume? <laughs> yes, From the Shi'ar, so the Shi'ar Imperial oh Guard? God, it's terrible. This is not a bad first appearance for the character of Sabretooth at all. He's a badass. Everybody talks about how badass he is. He puts up a really good fight against Iron Fist. I mean, sure, he gets his ass kicked, and he's wearing the same costume, but I would argue it's pretty timeless. I'm giving his first appearance a, a huge buy it, and this comic, gigantic buy it. It was so fun. Did you just give this comic two ratings? I did. I gave the first appearance a rating, too. But you didn't do it to your previous two comics. No, that's true. Yeah. Previous one. Previous one. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah, this was fun. Uh, I don't buy that Chris Claremont had big plans for, uh, for Sabretooth after this because it was not until years later. Years. Like, literally, literally almost a decade later that Sabretooth also, got any of the backstory that we know him to have today. So I think that they maybe he, took a character that was a blank slate and they're like, oh yeah, he's kind of like Wolverine. And they gave Wolverine an arch, ne an arch nemesis. He's even got him talking like Wolverine. He calls, he's calling he people says bub the word bub. <laughs> he says the word bub. This is one year after Wolverine's first appearance. I don't think name bub one, was in the lexicon. Name any other character that's not Wolverine that drops bub in comics. Look, I'm saying that one year after Wolverine's first appearance, Bub is not his defining characteristic. <laughs> Says you. Uh, but yeah, this was a lot of fun. Uh, uh, the art, you can tell that John Byrne, just from looking at this, that he's going to be a superstar. Yeah, John Byrne was so good here. And this is a couple of years before his X-Men run even. So yeah, big, big, big fun stuff. Uh, you're right. Sabretooth is all up in this uh, as opposed to another ex-villain that we're going to read about here in a little bit. Um, yes. It's a really good first appearance, though. Definitely. As far as first appearances go, yeah, it's a winner. I'm giving it a buy it. I really enjoyed it. Um, again, I feel like uh, you're measuring your comics and my comics differently because this is equally as cheesy <laughs> as my other comics. No way. Yes. No way. Yes. It was way more serious. No, 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 Get no. Get out of here. This is like, this People is Claremont. got shot. Like, Claremont, Claremont had 10 years to develop his voice between this comic and the next one we're going to talk about. <laughs> but it's still like full Claremont, man. <laughs> oh, I'm not saying it's not. It's complete cheeseball soap opera lunacy. And I loved it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I liked totally it too. I liked it, it too. <laughs> All right, we're going to jump forward a couple years to 1979, where I am reviewing Rom Space Knight number one from Marvel Comics. Now, I had a few random issues of Rom as a kid, but I never actually read his first appearance until now. One thing I learned from reading this classic by Bill Mantlo and Sal Buscema, Rom fucking rules. Rom yeah, rules. 
Yeah, you don't fuck with ROM. No. That's what you learn in the first issue, <laughs> basically. The creators take a silly toy concept with a flimsy story and turn it into a legit, scary alien invasion story. For the first half of the issue, Rom does not say a word, and he looks no. like he's straight up murdering townspeople in broad and, daylight. And we don't know if he's a robot. We don't know if he's no, a dude in we a don't costume. Know shit. You don't know shit about him. It's like he's the Terminator, yeah, basically. Yeah, exactly. Uh, in reality, he is a space knight from the planet Galador, sworn to track and eliminate the threat of the sinister dire wraiths wherever they gain a foothold. Mantlo's story oozes a classic sci-fi movie vibe, having the wraiths infiltrate a small town so completely that the townsfolk are terrified when Rom shows up and starts killing their friends. The writer also creates an interesting contrast between the high science of the Galadorians and the dark mysticism of the Dire Wraiths. Like his brother John, Sal Buscema was an industry titan with a lengthy career on books like The Incredible Hulk and Spectacular Spider-Man that spanned the majority of my entire childhood. His action scenes are incredible, and I love the way he was able to make a character with a ridiculous square head and metal mittens feel legitimately imposing. Rom is another example of Marvel taking a license and making it about 1,000 times more compelling than it had any right to be, just like they eventually did with books like Star Wars, Transformers, and G.I. Joe. I'm giving Rom number one a huge buy it. Yeah, Salbushima is so good here. Like, just fantastic. And Bill Mantlo wrote the hell out of this comic. There is so much text it's crazy yeah but <laughs> like, it never felt like i never felt bogged down by it no not at all but this, this was like bill mantlo doing like something to the effect of battlestar galactica meets the day the earth stood still yes basically. the day the earth stood Where, still yes right because like we don't know shit about rom when he shows up and rom was not an established character in the marvel universe so when you pick it up like you said it, it's just like is he the bad guy? Is he a mom? Is he like Frankenstein? Like, what are we dealing with here? And man, it, it they don't make them like this anymore. And I said that before we started re recording. Like, you can't make comics like this anymore if you're going to introduce a, a character for the first time. It needs to be like page one. Don't worry, you're going to like this character. We promise you're going to like him. It's okay. No, I I know he's new, but you're going to like him. He's doing cool stuff. Check it out. You, you like him, right? Yeah, right? Great. We'll see you for issue two. Not Rom. Rom did not give a shit. Rom is here for one mission, and that mission is killing bad guys. <laughs> like, and if you don't like that mission, you better get the fuck out of Rom's way. He showed up, he showed up and he murdered, he murdered like five people in front of the woman yeah. that would eventually become his wife. Yeah, and, and people are terrified, <laughs> and, and they should be, I mean, obviously. Uh, it's so good, no. it's so good. This kicked ass, I'm giving it a huge buy it, and as far as, like, first appearances go, man, you can't do first appearances it's, like this anymore. It is you everything, can't. It's everything you need to know about Rom in one issue. Totally, it's all right here, excellent. Let's jump back into the late 80s, Joe Patrick, I'm reviewing Uncanny X-Men 221 from Marvel. This is your first Mr. Sinister. And let me tell you, they go right into it. Page one, full spread headshot, Mr. Sinister. Now that is how you do a first appearance. Also, he has fangs. 
Don't remember. Finn's oh yes, he, I remember definitely him having fangs at the beginning, like a mouthful of fangs. Not, and not so much like Dracula. Not like Dracula fangs. Like every tooth. No. Like every tooth is a fang. Yeah, like shark teeth. Shark teeth, <laughs> right? <laughs> yes, shark teeth. Now here's the thing. As a child, I grew up reading these comics. I remember getting them in my mailbox, delivered in a little. Like, uh, you know, a sleeve, a little brown oak tag sleeve or whatever, and freaking out and taking them home and reading them instantly, running in the house. I mean, like, I need to read my X-Men comics. And just thinking, Mark Silvestri is an amazing artist. This guy blows me away. I've never seen comic art like this. And when I revisited this, the art is not as good as I remember. Yeah, sure it is. It's exactly what <laughs> it's you remember. Not. It's just not. Yeah, it is. I, I'm just saying, I remember Sylvester's art blowing me away. But there are panels here that look unfinished. Some of them, they're super weird. There's like a panel where Dazzler and Rogue are fighting. By the way, Claremont writes Dazzler and Rogue trying to murder each other in the danger room. Well, no, the first, that scene, uh, it's a rogue, it's a rogue uh, hologram. It's not really rogue. Oh, it's At Dazzler trying to murder Rogue. Yeah, holograms. yeah, oh, it's that's a simulation. Right. right. But there's a scene where they're like flying across the room and they crash into some speakers and all that's drawn is their legs. That's it. They have no body. It's fine. <laughs> they were smashing into the pile of speakers. It's bizarre. No, it's not. Now, I'm marking some of this up to Dan Green's inking here, and I can't imagine uh, how hard it was. Point of order. Ink. Do you know who inked Iron Fist 14? Dan, Dan Green. Green. <laughs> he was inking a very different artist. Right. John Byrne was arguably a completely different artist. Yeah. Mark Silvestri was doing weirdo art. Super weird at the time. No one else was drawing like his this. pencils are and very loose. Yes, they are very they're loose. bizarre. And I don't think that Green knew how to ink him. I'm not saying it's his fault or he's bad. I'm saying I can't imagine what that was like to sit down and stare at this art and look at that picture of Nays, the Indian guy, cackling and go, Jesus Christ. <laughs> like, there's hair, there's no nose, like the face is all over the place. What do I do with this? <laughs> This is Chris Claremont also going completely insane writing the X-Men, and I love it so damn much. It is high soap opera mutant madness. Dazzler and Rogue trying to kill each other. Storm is depowered, hanging out with a horny old Indian named Naze, looking for whacked-out Forge, who, by the way, just stole Storm's powers. Wolvie is wearing a cowboy hat and has his team staking out Madeline Pryor in San Francisco, and the Marauders are coming to kill her. Longshot is on the team, and he's a total idiot. I love him so much. <laughs> this took me back to my favorite era of the X-Men, and one of the reasons I fell in love with Comics. It's always weird going home, and the art is not what I remember, but I loved this, and I honestly think I might need to revisit The Fall of the Mutants very soon. I'm giving this a huge buy it, and I loved Sinister's first appearance. The first thing he does, he's like, you got you marauders are a bunch of idiots. I gave you one job, and you can't do it, and Sabretooth's like, oh, I'm going to kill you, and he just grabs it by the neck. He's like, no, you're not. <laughs> uh, was, That's how badass Sinister is. They instantly establish it. In your version of the comic, was uh, Mr. Sinister, were his accents green instead of red? Yes. <laughs> that was weird. 
I don't quite get what was going on there. It almost looked like stink lines. <laughs> uh, yeah, look, I'm. Uh, I disagree with you about the art. I think Mark Silvestri's art has always been this way. He was a young artist. He was finding his style. Uh, we can have a long conversation about representative art and what that means, and about how not everything has to have completely closed lines. I'm just saying, I I didn't remember it like that. But like I That's looked at this and I was like, yeah, this is great. I can understand looking at this why Mark Silvestri became a superstar. Uh, I and I get it too. It was just so weird. That's not what I remember. It wasn't weird. It wasn't weird. Uh yeah, I it this is as as far as the first appearance goes, Mr. Sinister's in it for three pages, whatever. Uh but the way they do it, the way they set it up. He's it's certainly like, it's like he's very formidable. Uh, yeah. And you're like, who the fuck was that guy that right. just kicked the shit out of Sabretooth? <laughs> you know? This is the fun thing that I remember about Claremont's run specifically is that uh, Mr. Sinister was hinted at 10 issues prior and only mentioned by name the issue after that. And so it took almost an entire year for him to actually make an appearance. And that's Chris <laughs> Claremont in a nutshell. Oh yeah. Where he would Slow like burn. he would set up something and then it would not pay off oh, for yeah. He set up shit about a traitor to the X-Men in the 90s that he never got a chance to pay off and some other writer had to take and run with that ball and it was years later, years. Wasn't it supposed wasn't it, it was, supposed to It was oh, onslaught. That's right. They made it Gambit. They ended on. up no, it wasn't Gambit. It was uh Professor X was, it was the traitor. I'm sorry. What I mean was it was supposed to be Gambit from what he was. There saying. were so many rumors. I remember we, reading yeah. Wizard at the time and they're like maybe it's Iron Man. What? Iron Man? <laughs> Why would it be think, Iron Man? <laughs> I think it was like I recall him saying it was supposed to be Gambit and that and later on they did that trial of Gambit shit and I so oh, desperately Again, that was years wanted, later. Yeah. I wanted to learn that Harpoon from the Marauders was Harpoon actually Gambit. Harpoon was secretly Gambit. Pretending to be an Eskimo. I thought, <laughs> I thought of that when I read this issue and I saw Harpoon. I'm like, I did too. I was like, oh shit, it's right there. It's Gambit. You could have done it. You could have done it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, this is good fun. This is good fun. And like you said with uh, with ROM number one, they don't really do it like this anymore. No, they don't. Uh, this was a blast to read. I loved the art. I'm giving it a buy it as well. My final review is of DC Comics Presents number 52 from 1982. Late pre-crisis Superman stories were pretty wild. Presumably anything new under the sun that could be done with the character had already been done. So DC made huge swerves like making Clark and Lois and even Jimmy Olsen and Lois's rival Lana Lang TV anchors instead of news reporters. <laughs> sure. I love this era. I love it. They were diversifying. <laughs> yeah. It's so weird. And it lasted forever. I remember having a reprint of uh, an earlier issue of Superman from like six years earlier where Superman has to go fight Solomon Grundy and he hypnotizes Steve Lombard and puts him in heavy makeup and convinces him to do and convinces him to do a newscast as Clark Kent. It's so stupid. 
Yeah, you so know, they, don't, they, they don't make them like that yeah, anymore. Do you? Increasingly, <laughs> increasingly bizarre excuses for why Clark Kent would have to disappear in the middle of a news broadcast. The co-stars of this comic are the quote-unquote new Doom Patrol, who had actually made their own first appearance in the pages of Showcase number 94 five years earlier in 1977. Uh, <laughs> but hey, I guess they, uh, you know, they'd never met Superman. They were good at keeping a little profile, so they were new to him. Sure, sure. Uh, none of that's neither here nor there because the real draw of this otherwise forgettable issue is the first appearance of Ambush Bug. What I was not expecting when I started reading this was that the bumbling fourth wall breaking hero that I've come to know and love started his career as a straight up murderer. <laughs> his first scene has him literally throwing the district attorney of Metropolis off of a roof or something like that. It's unclear. It's a roof, I think. I think it's a roof. Uh, other than that, the character's offbeat personality is on full display thanks to writer Paul Kupperberg, a young Keith Giffen who would go on to become the primary carrier of the Ambush Bug Torch, is on the art here, and it's clear that he had an affinity for the character from the start. Now, while his work in this issue is a bit wonky, uh, I did love the occasional cameos by indie comics characters of the time in the form of parade balloons. Uh, if you if you were paying attention, you would see um, the main character of ElfQuest. What's his name? Dash? I don't remember. Uh, oh, ElfQuest, yeah. the blonde guy. Up. I didn't even pick up on that. Uh, yeah. Cerebus yeah. is in here. Judge Dredd is yeah. in here. Yeah. Overall, the story of Ambush Bug's scheme and the Doom Patrol's crisis are completely disconnected. And Giffen's art, while promising isn't as strong as it would one day become. Still, it's fun to see the beginnings of one of my favorite D-list characters, so I'm giving DC Comics Presents 52 a skim it. Who? Um, I don't know what I thought of this outside of the fact that it was barely a comic book. I mean, it was it was literally a comic book. <laughs> this, but I'm just saying, like, this is insanity. This is sheer insanity and not always in a good way. And <laughs> yeah, like the art was weird. And he was a young Keith Giffen. You can see that he's going to be good and he's figuring it out. Uh, I don't understand what they were going for, but I guess that was just kind of like the deal in DC Comics Presents where it's just like, hey, whatever the fuck we feel like this month, basically. DC Comics <laughs> Presents was a team-up book like Marvel team-up. Right. Uh, but instead I, of Spider-Man and a hero, it was Superman and a hero. I can't lie to you and tell you that I enjoyed it. I can't say that it was terrible because there were parts of it that were so much, that were just so wacky and bizarre that I'm like, what am I reading? I... I as far as a for good for a, like a first appearance, I can't say that it's good, because well, I mean he's the main protagonist or antagonist. He is, but the character is terrible, and this has nothing to do with the character as we get to know him. The other characters that we reviewed go on to be like recognizable <laughs> as that character. I you got to start somewhere, man. I suppose I, I don't want to give it a leave it, but I think I have to give it a leave it because I just like I think you can give this. it a skim it. I think you're you trying can give to, it a skim it. to do that. Yeah. I did not enjoy it. I, I found it I found it fascinating from a historical perspective. I found it fascinating from a historical perspective too, and I never want to read it again. I'm giving it a lead. <laughs> well, you don't have to read it again. 
My final review goes to New Teen Titans number two from DC 1980, the first appearance of Deathstroke. I have never read any Teen Titans of the, this old Marvel what, really? and, and never read it. Never did. Wow. I read some later on, I read some Teen Titans stuff. I know that this stuff is very formative for people. I know that it has been likened to DC's X-Men and whatnot, and it, and that's fine. That's all fine and good. <laughs> we'll get into my feelings here in a minute here. Again, great first appearance. First panel, full page, first appearance of Deathstroke. First words, who do you want me to kill? He's an instant badass. We, we see him dodging bullets. He whips out his sword. He throws a grenade. Kick-ass first appearance. We understand that Deathstroke is not to be messed with. Instantly. Uh, like I said, never read Teen Titans before. Marv Wolfman really loves to narrate panels. Panels where what you are seeing drawn <laughs> also gets narrated. Like you're looking at a comic book panel where the wall opens up and a bunch of machine guns come out. And Marv Wolfman writes, suddenly a section of the wall slides open and machine guns snap into place from their concealed niches. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> I'm looking uh, at I mean, it. I don't think that that's exclusive to Marv Wolfman at the time, though. No, it's not. But, like, I read some other... I went and read some other Marv Wolfman stuff from this time. He loves to narrate. <laughs> this team, by the way, is super horny. <laughs> they are Starfire very horny. makes out with Robin just to learn English. Cyborg is rubbing Wonder Girl's back. There's a bikini pool party at Beast Boy's place. Yeah. This is one of the horniest comics I've ever read. Well, by the way, he lives in like a decadent mansion. Oh, yeah. Like Robin shows up. Dick Grayson is like, hey, I thought Bruce Wayne was rich. But he's got nothing on where you live, apparently. <laughs> yes. By the way, the team hates each other. <laughs> they don't hate each other. They, they totally hate each only other. Been They're to, sniping I, in all the dialogue. Cyborg is calling Robin Batboy and shit. At the, at the time of this issue, they'd only been together about a week. Yeah, they mentioned that in the narration several times, by the way. <laughs> one time. Uh, they mentioned it one time. Deathstroke's son starts off... I didn't quite know what was going on because this is issue number two, obviously. Something happened in issue number one where we meet Deathstroke's son <laughs> and he has a girlfriend. This and Deathstroke's is the part son I want to talk about. <laughs> is roughing up his girlfriend yeah. and the Teen Titans show up and they're like, knock it off. Starfire like shoots him with something. And he's like, you know what? I'm out of here. And I'm going to go get powers and I'm going to come back as a Ravager. Not only going to kill the Titans, but I'm going to kick the shit out of my girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> this is the part. This is the part where I was like, what? Uh, because <laughs> I grew up, I grew up reading later Teen Titans comics and this right. story of like, oh yeah, Deathstroke blames the Titans for killing his son, the Ravager. Right. And I read this appearance by the Ravager and it's like, guy is mad jealous. He's a shithead. Convinces a supervillain society to give him powers right. and then dies of his own volition. <laughs> Yeah, he, he not only is an irredeemable shithead, right? But he's bad at being a superhero. Like, and I don't understand. Like, I don't understand how anybody, parent or no, can look at what happened yeah. with Grant Wilson and go, "Yeah, you know what? He made his own bed." 
Well, it's almost as stupid as being like, yeah, the Titans made my girlfriend break up with me. I'm going to go yeah, get superpowers right. yeah, exactly. and try and kill them. Like, that, that, was the mo- that was the Ravager's motivation. He was mad at yeah. Starfire and Wonder Girl? Yeah, because the Titans made him break, make it, made his girlfriend break up with him. Yeah, that's <laughs> what the hell. Yeah, I thought the X-Men were drama queens. I had no idea how dramatic the, the Titans get. It is nuts. The art is fantastic, I gotta say. It, it's just, like, packed full of action. The issue that I read was recolored, but I but I gotta say the recoloring is done way better than any of the Marvel Masterworks stuff that I reread for this episode. This is a fantastic first appearance for Deathstroke, and it is a fun issue. Like I said... I know this run is is legendary, and I might actually mean read more of it just to see where this goes. I couldn't believe how horny and dramatic it was. Oh, uh, you should pick I'm up. I'm to buy it. This was fun. You should pick up the Judas contract uh, where oh, it is boy. revealed that Deathstroke has been courting a teenage girl <laughs> and has used her to infiltrate the Teen Titans. Spoiler alert. Good lord. I mean like I almost like, think like Marv Wolfman should have been put on a list after Yeah, it's like look, Tara is a child. She is 16. Yeah, Marvin, do we need to talk? <laughs> yeah. Uh yeah, you know what? Uh I don't think I had ever actually read this particular issue, but I've read a bunch of these earlier Teen Titans comics. You're not wrong. They are super horny. Uh I I, I was not at all surprised where they showed where they showed up, but you know what? X Men was the same. X Men was the same. Storm did not understand clothes. Starfire oh, sure. does not understand clothes. But Storm also had like clouds around her and stuff like no, that. No, no. Like this one, they're like, she come to like, the pool party and, and put on these string bikinis, hot bitches. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. yeah I mean, that was and one Wonder thing. Girls. They're like, really? You call this a bathing suit? <laughs> It's like Wonder Girl. You, you have to you, put it on. Yeah, you could have not put it on. You could have just like not yeah. gone into the pool. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. It's it's it is what you say. It is what it is. Uh, but I I love it. I love it. I enjoyed it. George Perez, of course, is a master. Uh, and you're right. As a first appearance, though the motivations are weird, Deathstroke was tough as nails, man. Yeah, we know exactly who he is. We you know what he's the, about. You, you knew from the jump badass. that he was going to be a total terrible villain for these guys. He's got a really stupid kid. <laughs> he's got a manservant and an eye patch and a weird beard. I like him. I'm giving it a buy it. Yeah, and a really dumb son. It's really dumb. This concludes our reviews of famous first appearances. I hope you guys had fun with it, and we would love to hear what you thought about these first appearances and uh, whether you agree or not. You can hit us up on any of our social medias, of course, or you can call us at 402-819-4894 and leave us a message. We would love to hear from you. But yeah, tell us what you guys thought of these, and if you haven't read them yet, give them a read. This shit is so much fun. I love this. It's, it's <laughs> really a blast. comics. This is a blast. Get excited, nerds, because we are here in the THN Sanctum Sanctorum again to shake the magic eight ball of Marduk and reveal the theme for next week's reviews. Shake a 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 sh
It looks like next week we will be reviewing famous monster comics. Godzilla, Frankenstein, Dracula. You get it. Stay tuned to our Facebook and Twitter like to see Freddy, Jason, famous monsters. You know, like let's get, what let's get into it. Warriors? Nope, what about Shogun Warriors? No. What about Shogun Warriors? Giant robot. They fought, but they fought monsters. But they're not monsters. They don't star in it. They're all right. They all want right, monsters right. that are the stars of the comics. Stay tuned to our Facebook and Twitter to see which issues we'll be reading, and you can play along. Now let's peer into the cursed mirror of Cathon and see what the random trade of the week is for next week. Guess what? It's Godzilla, Kingdom of the Monsters from IDW. It's written by Eric Powell and Various with art by Phil Hester and Various. 304 pages for $29.99. Here's your solicit. The King of the Monsters rises again, and he's bringing lots of other beloved Toho monsters with him in one destructive saga. When Godzilla appears off the coast of Japan, the Japanese government was... The Japanese government must respond quickly to contain the disaster. But before long, other monsters begin appearing all over the world. Can humanity survive this mysterious onslaught of giant beasts? Spoiler, no. Featuring Angiris, Batra, Destroyer, Gigan, Hedora, King Ghidorah, Kumonga, Mechagodzilla, Mothra, Rodan, Space Godzilla, and Titanosaurus! <laughs> it collects the entire... 12 issue series for the first time i loved this series and it was eric powell wrote a bunch of it phil hester did the first few and then a few other artists came in and wrote some stuff there were backup stories by other artists as well so much fun go to your local comic book store have them order this help them out by picking it up it's a great read and it's gonna be fun for our monster week It's time for a brand new segment, nerds. Joe and I were putting our heads together and we said, you know what? Things have, uh, maybe we lost our magic. You know, maybe we need to give these kids a little something to brighten things up around here. And we decided, what could we do that would be the most work possible for another segment? And we came up with a doozy. We're calling it This Is Your Life, where we dissect a character with really, really, questionable continuity and try and make some sense of their history this week it is guy gardner's term it's time to play guy gardner this is your life joe patrick i put you on the job as our official guy gardner historian can you lead me through the miasma that is guy gardner continuity oh i can and don't worry we're not gonna like address every single storyline he took part in just the uh, no. This is not a th- just this is not gra- a three and a half hour podcast. Just the <laughs> just the greatest hits. Yeah. Uh, as we discussed earlier in the episode, Guy Gardner first appeared in an imaginary story in the pages of Green Lantern fifty nine from nineteen sixty eight. It depicted what would have happened had Guy, the other worthy candidate to receive Abinser's ring, had actually become Green Lantern instead of Hal Jordan. Hal later befriended Guy in real life, and his personality remained relatively bland until the 1980s when Steve Englehart and Joe Statton recreated him as the guy we learned to love to hate. Why Guy Gardner, though? Why did Steve Englehart fall in love with Guy Gardner? Is there a reason? Is there anything out there? Uh, (laughs) Yeah, it had something to do with the fact that, like, they wanted to do, they were doing these stories where like Hal Jordan had backup Green Lanterns on Earth and Steve Englehart was like, 
well, why does it have to be just Jon Stewart? Why can't Hal have more than one backup? And so they resurrected Guy Gardner, Guy Gardner out of, like, the history books. His Wikipedia calls him a jingoistic parody of an ultra-macho, red-blooded American male. <laughs> that is true in part. Uh, so in his, in his newly revealed fictional history, Guy was raised in Baltimore by his parents, Roland and Peggy Gardner. His father was an abusive alcoholic. And he worked hard to try to win his father's approval, but he lived in the shadow of his older brother, Mace, which is a just a weird name to give a kid. Well, you know, I mean, it was a different time. Mace Gardner. <laughs> it's not bad. I kind of like it. He sounds right. badass. <laughs> uh, now, Guy's only escape at the time was General Glory comic books. <laughs> And he was so obsessed with them that he went so far as to model his own bowl cut after General Glory's <laughs> sidekick, Ernie. That's why Guy had the bowl cut. So he liked General Gardner so much that he was like, no, no, no. I don't want General Glory's haircut. I want his sidekick's haircut. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he wanted to be General Glory's sidekick. He wanted to, he wanted to adventure with General Glory. Got it. Who is a real uh, DC character? Right? Uh, yes and no. He was introduced eventually as a real superhero. Okay. Yes. Okay. Uh, in his teen years, Guy became a juvenile delinquent. He was constantly defying authority, uh, but he got straightened out by Mace, who at that point was a police officer, and he eventually went to college, supporting himself and earning a bachelor's degree in education and psychology from the University of Michigan, where... <laughs> I he was going to be a teacher? He was a teacher. Uh, <laughs> oh, where uh, it was revealed later on that he played football with John Henry Irons, a.k.a. Steele. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Uh, his football career was ended uh, by an injury. Uh, it deeply affected him, as it does I all macho guys who put their identity behind sports. Of course. I see him as a strong safety. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, after college, Guy Gardner was working as a social worker. He dealt with prison inmates and their rehabilitation, uh, but See, he was worried. Seems like a terrible idea. <laughs> he was worried that this line of work brought out his aggressive nature, so he quit and became. <laughs> so he's just like, these fucking prisoners. No! <laughs> I get so sick of their shit. <laughs> he, became a, he became a school teacher for children with disabilities. Uh, in his first appearance, he's a gym teacher. Uh, Abin Sur, the Ungaran Greenlander of Sector 2814, crash-landed on Earth after being mortally wounded. As he died, his power ring sought out and found two potential successors. Guy was one, Hal was the other, Jordan was closer to the crash, so he was chosen over Guy. Uh, yeah, in that same story, we learn about the what-if where Guy would have died in his first year of being Green Lantern. Uh, right. However, later on in the Booster Gold series, it's shown that a time-traveling booster convinced Guy to visit his dying father, thus ensuring that Hal would be closer to Abin Sur at the time, because he knew Ooh. so he knew that Hal needed to become Green Lantern first. So it's like the Starman issue where Starman goes back in time and helps and helps Baby Superman come to Earth. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> uh, Gardner was relegated to backup status should anything happen to Hal. 
He's Vice Green Lantern. He's Vice Green Lantern. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. When Hal became aware of Guy's status as his backup, he went out of his way to set up a meeting. The two became friends. Uh, but Gardner was originally naive to Hal's secret identity. He later partnered with Hal after completing his training with Kilowog. So even though he was the backup, he got to train with Kilowog. That's how he got in the core. He's got the moves. Now here's where it gets good. During an earthquake, <laughs> Gardner was hit by a bus. <laughs> Gardner, Gardner was hit by a bus while attempting to rescue one of his students. They couldn't just get hit by a bus. It was, there had to be an earthquake. There was an earthquake, <laughs> yes. Uh, during his recovery, the Guardians of the Universe recruited Jon Stewart to become Hal's new backup. So the only reason Jon Stewart became a backup <laughs> Green Lantern was because Guy Gardner got hit by a bus. He was too fucked up. I mean, what do you do? Too, we got to have a vice, too fucked up. right? I mean, come on. <laughs> Uh, sometime later, a guy was performing his duties as backup Green Lantern. Hal's power battery exploded. <laughs> Hal's, Hal's power battery exploded in Guy Gardner's face. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's a warning on the bottom. Yeah. It's like. There's a disclaimer. It's like <laughs> caution. Do not look directly into power battery as they tend to explode. <laughs> don't cut the tag off this power battery. Uh, for some reason, the explosion ended up trapping Guy in the negative zone. Pardon me, the phantom zone, because negative yeah, zone like, is whoa, moral. Whoa, whoa, yeah, whoa. Yeah. It ended up trapping him in the, in the phantom zone. Uh, the bus How does accident that work. I don't know. The bus accident, the explosion, his assimilation into the zone, and his subsequent torture at the hands of General Zod and other Phantom Zone criminals affected his mind. When Gardner was eventually released from the Phantom Zone, he was diagnosed with brain damage and was comatose for a number of years. <laughs> God. <laughs> you got, first of all, he gets hit by a bus. The power battery explodes. He gets sent to the negative zone. General Zod is just kicking him in the head. Just over and over and over. Which, again. by the way, already hurts. His head already yeah. hurts. His head got hit by a bus. <laughs> and a battery exploded on it. Uh, now, during Crisis on Infinite Earths, the Guardians of the Universe split into two factions over how to confront the crisis. A minority faction of six Guardians decided to emulate their former brethren, the Controllers. We know those oh, guys, uh, they eventually created the Dark Stars. Yep, they're bad news. Uh, they recruited. They wanted to recruit a Green Lantern to directly attack and destroy the forces of the Animatter universe uh, for reasons unknown. <laughs> because stuff. Because of stuff. <laughs> Gardner was revived by the Renegade Guardians. He was given a power ring that was not tied to the central power battery. And given so the uniform, uh, no. And he was given a uniform he similar was to brain what damaged? we. Yes, <laughs> they said he was. <laughs> yes. So they gave him a power ring, and they sent brain damaged dude what? out to kill these people. <laughs> that's not. That's not all. Uh, he was given the uniform that we're very familiar with the uh, the you know the boots and the big jacket. Yeah. Yeah. And he was uh, given the mission to recruit and command the deadliest and most powerful criminals in the universe to launch a strike against the home base of the Anti-Monitor. 
So <laughs> this is a fantastic idea. <laughs> so a rogue faction of guardians took a brain damaged member of their own crew and said, "Hey, here is the here is the universe's ultimate weapon. Why don't you recruit a bunch of murderers and go kill the anti monitor?" I got a guy. Now hear me out. He has brain damage. Okay, now just, just wait. Just, just wait. Hear me out. So here's the meat of it. Uh, Gardner's, <laughs> Gardner's brain damage manifested itself in the form of an arrogant, violent, unstable, and often childish new personality. Gardner believed himself to be the last true Green Lantern, superior to all the others, particularly Hal Jordan. Is this why he was such an asshole? Yes, in the guy because of the brain damage. Yes, because yes. he got kicked in the head by a bus. Correct. <laughs> now, uh, five of the Renegade Guardians were slain by a wave of <clears throat> five of the Renegade Guardians were killed by a wave of antimatter, and the sixth one reconciled with the rest of the Guardians. Uh, however, in the meantime, Gardner succeeded. Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. Time out. Where did this wave of antimatter come from? Oh, that's the crisis. There were waves of, ma- of antimatter. Oh, okay. Yeah, during the crisis. So through this the multiverse. In the crisis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is all and the during the crisis. one was like, fuck all this. Hey, guys, I know I said a bunch of terrible I'm shit. I'm really <laughs> sorry. I'm really sorry. I brought like a veggie plate, you know, no hard feelings. I just want to be a guardian again. I'm little. I'm yeah. blue. Where am I supposed to go? <laughs> you know? uh, however, in the meantime, a guy succeeded in his task of recruiting powerful villains but Hal and John Stewart prevented him from completing his mission, which would have ultimately destroyed the universe. <laughs> so not Look, only this is what happens when you put someone with brain damage in charge. I mean, like, I, I need a, this is not me, you know, uh, condemning the brain damaged. <laughs> right. No, it's just but. like I'm not going to give him a power ring. This would literally be like if the United States gave Jim McMahon, quarterback of the Chicago Bears, who is like so badly brain damaged that he can't remember his phone number, like the keys to the nuclear codes (laughs) and said, Jim, (laughs) you got to save us. (laughs) Now we're trusting you to make the right decision, you know. (laughs) And God bless Jim McMahon. I'm not making fun of him. It's too bad what happened to that guy. I love him. Uh, You know what? I don't know if we need to really read much more of this part. Uh, following the following the crisis on Infinite Earth, there were a number of uh, of uh, adventures that resulted in uh, Guy losing his power ring and becoming uh, imprisoned. He was later freed after a impassioned plea by his former love, Carrie Limbo. Carrie Limbo. Yes, uh, who got Hal Jordan man. to plea on Gardner's behalf for his freedom. Uh, okay. His freedom was granted with no return of gratitude from Gardner. Classic guy. <laughs> As a consequence of the Green Lantern Corps executing Sinestro, the majority of the Corps lost their power rings, and Guy was one of the few remaining active Green Lanterns. After the death of the so-called Mad Guardian, the Guardians returned and assigned Gardner to be the official Green Lantern of Sector 2814, well, See, this is the shit that just constantly blew my mind about Gar- Guy Gardner. It's like no matter how bad this guy fucked up or was an <sighs> asshole, they were just like, "Well, he's our he's our guy." You yeah, know? Like, yeah. It, look, we're, we're sticking with him. <laughs> you know? They they made him the Green Lantern of Sector Two Eight One Four and assigned Hal to go off and recruit new Green Lanterns. 
That's a terrible idea. <laughs> Just a terrible idea. A number of years in adventures past with Guy as an active Green Lantern, including the formation of the Justice League International. Loved it. Probably my favorite Guy Gardner. Gardner resented Batman's leadership of the group, going so far <laughs> as to challenge the Dark Knight to a fist fight. Batman downed Guy with one punch, the very famous <laughs> one punch scene after yes. Guy took off his ring. The other members left him lying on the floor. <laughs> when Guy woke up, he banged his head on a console and knocked himself out again. When he comes to, his personality has changed to being kind and gentle. More uh, brain damage, by the way. Yeah, exactly. Just like more brain trauma. All right, yeah, is, yeah, yeah, this yeah, is yeah. like the Chris Benoit story almost. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, and I mean, if I recall, it was it was a number of issues before he hits his head again and becomes the regular guy gardener we know and love. Yes. Uh, he, he, guy's run in the JLI was full of constant personality shifts, endless arguing between team members, which led to a fight with Lobo, the sucker punching of Blue Beetle during a boxing match, and finally him quitting the team after being quote unquote belittled by Superman. Guy it's had like a, a, a series of like perceived insults. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck all you guys, I quit. Yeah. Guy had a romantic uh, involvement with his fellow leaguer Ice. Uh, he even learned some Norwegian to like woo her, uh, but Which, like, why Ice even dated this? He guy? was always shitty to her. He was always I shitty know, to and her. She, and Ice was so sweet. Like, what, she just attracted to bad boys, or I mean, like, seriously. <laughs> yeah, in those early days, he was very callous to her. He was slow to admit his feelings. He uh, was terrible to her. The relationship ended when she died at the hands at the hands of the Overmaster. That was in the uh, mid nineties. The Overmaster. The Overmaster, uh, aka the Master Master. <laughs> no, he's the he's the Master over the Master. Oh right. Sometime yeah, yeah. sometime later, Hal Jordan returned to Earth to reclaim his role as Green Lantern of Sector Two Eight One Four. Gardner's response was to challenge Hal to a fight, where the loser would quit the core. Of course, of course, Gardner lost and surrendered yeah. his ring. Like, thankfully, he fucking lost because Guy Gardner's a terrible person. Well, except. <laughs> and except, Hal Jordan is a goddamn hero. Okay? Yeah, uh, except uh, after some failed run-ins with Goldface and Black Hand as a non-powered vigilante, he set out on a quest to regain his power and identity. He tricked Lobo into assisting him. He invaded Quard to find the yellow power ring of Sinestro, but... He was told by the Quardians that the ring was unique and never returned to the planet. He then traveled to Oa, where he found the ring on Sinestro's dead body, where they just left it in, <laughs> in the Green Lantern crypt. Nobody checked on that. Nobody's like, hey, maybe this is a bad idea. We should put this I mean, in a I'm, safe. Uh, like, we, yeah, got like an, we have an armory, don't we? I mean, anywhere like, would be hey, better than this. Hey, guys, let me, let me just ask. Um, is anyone going to be guarding this and like no, no no i mean he's dead what's okay. the what's the problem <laughs> yeah like what, what could possibly I don't get go wrong i don't get it I don't, what's your issue <laughs> eventually guys yellow ring be, okay I, we should say that it was at this point it was just after this point 
where we checked in with Guy yeah. last week in Guy Gardner number one. Uh, super it is asshole. Very bad. <laughs> yes. And this is like super asshole guy. Yes. Eventually, Guy's yellow ring began to falter due to the meddling of parallax. And he started a quest for more power. He was given a yellow exosuit designed by Blue Beetle to enhance his abilities. But after a grief-stricken Hal Jordan destroyed the central power battery on Oa, Guy was offered the last Green Lantern ring by the last surviving guardian, Gantet. He turned it down, and the ring Who should know better, by the way? Gantet should know better. But that's, <laughs> hey, why, that's why the <laughs> ring went to Kyle Rayner. Yes. Uh, Guy led a group of heroes to Oa to confront Parallax, where, duh, his exosuit and his yellow ring were finally destroyed because <laughs> Parallax is a god. Yeah. And, and Blue Beetle made your suit. Right. And Blue Beetle's not a god. Right. <laughs> so. uh, defeated Guy teamed up with a group of adventurers, including Monster Hunter Buck Wargo, uh, and learned of his half-alien heritage. He the found Wargo of the Rhode Island Wargos. Yeah, the Rhode that? Island Wargos. <laughs> yes. He found and drank from the fabled Good Jewish kid Buck Wargo. <laughs> <laughs> he found and drank the fabled warrior waters and unlocked the Valdarian DNA present in his body. Oh boy! <laughs> now it it did take some time to master this, though gave him the ability to transform his body into various weapons. Now here is a now, fun note. To be fair. Real quick, this is absolutely the work of the writers at the time. There was no hint whatsoever in Guy Gardner's history that he was part alien. Wrong. Get out of here. Fun fact, writer Bo Smith stated that these new abilities were mandated by DC editorial in order, <laughs> in order to capitalize on the popularity of, no joke, the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Oh, my God. Are you serious? That's what it says. <laughs> now, I want to be totally fair here. I want to be totally fair here because this is about where I started reading Guy's ongoing series. Uh, Bo Smith's run on Guy's series went a long way to humanize the character. It and added it's fun. It added much needed depth to his damaged personality, and yes. it was eventually revealed that a villain called Dementor, who was also a Valdarian whatever nonsense, uh, was res ultimately responsible. Uh, this is long before Harry Potter, by the way. He was ultimately responsible for Guy's many personality changes over the years. He'd like been manipulating his Voldemort. His name's not Voldemort. No, Dementor. The Dementors. You know. Oh, Dementors. Dementor. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, but yeah, he had been like manipulating Guy's mind for his like his entire life, basically. Guy operated as warrior for years. He even opened the famous uh, superhero hangout bar called Warriors, which I love. I do too. Uh, this was before his supposed death during the Our Worlds at War crossover, though it was revealed eventually that he was actually trapped in a corner of hell called yep. the Gorge. Uh, Guy Gardner went to hell. He did. Uh, <laughs> this was during Joe Kelly's run on Action Comics. Uh, he was eventually freed and returned to life. And then when writer Jeff Johns resurrected Hal Jordan in the pages of Green Lantern Rebirth, Guy's Valdarian DNA was overwritten, a.k.a. ignored. 
<laughs> Restoring both his human form and his status as a member of the Green Lantern Corps, which, where he continues to serve until this day. Which is totally fine because it was stupid. I loved it. Look, look, I'm at sorry. At the time, if you want to say that it was better than what was going on with other Guy Gardner stuff, I don't disagree, but it was still stupid. Guy Gardner, this is your life. <laughs> and I gotta say, it sure seems like somebody at DC hated this character. <laughs> and we just like, but, hate, but hated him to a sense where it's like, no, 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 no. We're not gonna kill him. No. We're gonna kick this character. We're just gonna torture him. Out. We're gonna torture him for <laughs> decades. <laughs> decades. Oh, no. This character gets to live. <laughs> Again, he's gonna hate every minute of it. <laughs> Sheesh. What a nightmare. This has been Guy Gardner. This is your life. Joe Patrick, thank you very much for your research. That was incredible. I wish I could say it was and a pleasure. I would love to hear your suggestions for characters that you would love us to try and make some sense of their continuity and history. Right here on This Is Your Life. Excelsior! Oh. That is it for THN 569, and there is no way we will ever devote this much airtime to Guy Gardner Warrior discussion ever again. I promise you that. Joe Patrick, give these nerds a new question of the week. This week's question was once again submitted by Phil Lee via the THN forums. God bless that dude, by the way. Fight, fight, fight! I love when heroes fight. So it's superhero deathmatch time. What comic slash cartoon characters that have never squared off should go mano y mano. Personally, I want Conan to kick the demon dog shit out of Thundar. Also, who do you think would win? I added that part. I want to know who wins. You can't just tell me who you want to see fight or know who wins and why. Yeah, stop adding rules. Stop adding rules. Nah, just it's good. It's too good. It's too good. I love the rules. Uh, the question of the week now lives on Facebook. I also posted on the forums, but mainly I want it on Facebook. It's going to be written responses. If you want to submit an audio response in the form of an MP3 or a voicemail, feel free. Uh, I've decided, I believe, that uh, after the question has run its course, I will draft a post on the site that will have everybody's answers as well as voicemails and uh, MP3s. Just yeah, no, no, no. That, we, will, be, we'll that will be cover to cover. It'll be a YouTube post as well, where we like we'll put all the audio stuff up there on YouTube. Because it's gonna Here's have the text answer. stuff. Yeah, but I'm saying you can take that YouTube post and embed it with text stuff, and like here's all the audio answers we got. Bam. Yeah. Uh, of course, you can call us at 402-819-4894 for the voicemails, or send an MP3 to twoheadednerd at gmail.com. We will make you internet famous, baby, or die trying. If you are new to this show and you'd rather swallow Thundar's Sun Sword than listen to another second, I assure you, it's only because you haven't heard enough. The good news is you can hear the entire run of THN in our digital long box archive at twoheadednerd.com. The kids post them that many episodes in Chiefs. We want to thank donors like local artist Tim Mayer. He's an artist. He doesn't have any goddamn money. That poor kid. I know. What he's are like they doing. He's like he's like one of those old timey uh, embodiments of the poor, 
where you, he's wearing like a literal whiskey barrel over his body with suspenders on it. <laughs> it's bad. Yeah, it's real day. bad. Where I was driving to the grocery store, and I know where Tim lives. I don't stalk him. Anything, but I know where he lives. And he was walking down the street, and I saw him, and I rolled over down, and I went, nerd! And his head just, like, hung lower. And I was like, oh, man. <laughs> like, oh, you ruined his day. Tim? Did I just kill Tim Mayer? <laughs> Before we go, our weekly shout-out goes to Rob Liefeld and Donnie Cates, who are doing their own part to support comic shops during the pandemic. Cates paid for every customer's poll file on hold at both Austin Comics, uh, pardon me, Austin Books and Comics and Dragon's Lair Comics in Austin, Texas this week. Why does Donnie Cates have this money? That is amazing. Like, he's not a millionaire. Donnie Cates is just a dude. Uh, I mean, it may not have been that much money. I don't know. I mean, he's got, think about, like, he's got Donnie Cates money. Old, think about our old comic shop if, like, someone called up and said, I want to pay for every profile. It would be many that thousands of been, dollars, yes. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's, 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 not it's not cheap. It's not cheap. No, that's amazing. Uh, Liefeld is auctioning original sketches, just like Jim Lee, except he's sending the cash directly to shops that are nominated by his fans. In fact, Amazing. earlier this week, the legendary artist sent the proceeds of one of his auctions to our very own Legend Comics and Coffee. It was it was such an enormous gesture that Dave, I assume, uh, who is usually the guy that runs Legend's social media, had to ask Rob if this amount was correct. <laughs> is this amount correct? And Rob was like, well, what was the amount? My assistant tallied it up. And Dave said what the amount was, and I was like, yep, great job. Your customers yeah. love you. But he was also like, man, those eBay jerks, they sure do take a bite. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, he was like, those like, PayPal jerks, they sure do take a bite, don't the, they? <laughs> I mean, the point of all this is that, like, these are not small gestures. These are enormous gestures. And to reach out like that specifically and just, like, find the shop and not only just be like all right that's the shop you want there you go boom and send it to him but like reach out personally that is amazing yeah that is amazing word to you guys thank you for everything you're doing to keep comic yeah. shops alive it's 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 so moving until next time true believers remember to support your local comic book store any way you can I cannot, I, I just can't even stress how cool it is what the creators are doing. And what we can do is go buy some back issues. Go buy some trade paperbacks. Buy gift cards. Go, go buy a gift card. Go pay off your damn pull file, you lazy son of a bitch, because I guarantee you've got a bunch of stuff sitting in there. I know you do. And if you don't, I'm going to come to your house and rough you up. This is a two-headed nerd. Signing off. I can't promise I'm going to beat you up, but I can promise you a bloody nose, okay? You're going to get that. <laughs>